The Gospel according to Mark. Chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that is a whole Sunday sermon right there. In fact, it will be this Sunday. We're going to come back and just ponder verse 1. And think about it and, and what is being expressed here. But I need to at least tell you tonight, the concept of a gospel was unique in the first century. It was a new concept. It had been generated somewhat in, in Rome uh, prior to the apostles taking hold of it, the early church taking hold of it, and, and literally appropriating it to what I think is the appropriate use. But the word gospel, the Greek word is euangelion, Euangelion. We're going to hear more Greek now than Hebrew because we're in a New Testament book. So the New Testament primarily written in the Greek. Some Aramaic is in there. There's a lot of Aramaic, as a matter of fact, in Mark. But mostly Greek in the New Testament. So the word there for gospel in verse 1 is euangelion. You've probably heard it in the Latin transliteration, a little closer to English, evangelium. And in English, of course, evangelism. So when we say we need to be more evangelical or we're evangelists, what we're talking about is we are gospel purveyors. We are people of the gospel. But what exactly does it mean? This idea behind euangelion or euangelion in the Greek is not just the giving of a biographical sketch. It's not the telling of a story. And we can mistake it for that. When we read the gospel accounts, four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we can say, oh yeah, the gospel of Matthew. It's the story of Jesus that Matthew tells. No, it's not. The gospel, the euangelion, is a proclamation. Euangelion means to proclaim something. In this case, the most wonderful theological truth ever proclaimed on the face of the planet. God made flesh, dwelling among us. Mark says this is the beginning of the proclamation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here's where it starts. Now, it had been hinted at, talked about, by the prophets over hundreds of years. We just finished Isaiah, and Jesus is all over the pages of Isaiah. From a Christian perspective, I look at Isaiah and I think, wow, that's proclaiming a lot about Jesus. And yet it was, it was hidden proclamation. It was not yet proclamation. It was prophecy. And prophecy often precedes proclamation. But along comes Jesus, and Mark now writes, this is proclamation time. It is time to stop wondering and guessing. It's time to look at the prophecies, see the person of Jesus, and realize He is the fulfillment of all these things. Proclamation. The Romans used this same word, euangelion, or evangelium, to describe a new emperor's ascension to the throne. They would say, we have a proclamation, it's proclaimed, it's been decreed, here is the new Caesar rising to the throne. And again, marvelously, the Holy Spirit inspired the early Christians to take hold of that word and say, wait a minute, that doesn't speak about some human emperor. This is a proclamation of Jesus Christ. They applied it to the life-saving royalty and the glory of Jesus to save people. That is is the evangelism. That is the evangelium, the euangelion of the Christian literature of the New Testament. Now, for those of you who, like me, think if only Jesus were running for president this election season, I want to tell you something. He is returning to take His throne just as He said. 
So be of good cheer. Don't worry about it. Vote. Absolutely vote. Pray seriously between now and November. But Jesus is coming back. And we could have the worst of all possibilities. (laughs) In the presidency. And we have in the past had some pretty bad ones, haven't we? Pretty bad leadership. Poor leadership. Go over the history of the presidents of this country. There have been some scoundrels. There have been some losers. And there have been some great men. Typically the ones who had some relationship with Jesus. But Jesus is coming back. And our proclamation is not the Republicans. (laughs) It's not the Democrats. It's not... I've given up so I'm independent. (laughs) The proclamation is Jesus Christ is coming for His people. Jesus Christ died for you. Jesus Christ is the answer to all the world's problems, even my problems and yours. Now as we begin the Gospel according to Mark, we need to understand there is only one Gospel. There's just one. Well, I thought there were four. No, there are four accounts. But there is one Gospel. That's why I even shy away from saying the Gospel of Mark. It's not the Gospel of Mark. It's the Gospel of Jesus Christ. According to Mark. You know, Mark is sharing it. Matthew gave his vision or his um, perspective of it. And Luke gives a perspective. And of course, John gives a perspective. But it's all the one and same gospel, the one proclamation. Paul even said in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, for a different proclamation. Paul says, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and they want to distort the gospel. They want to distort or tweak the proclamation of Christ. And Paul says, and these are serious words, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is accursed. Why would you say that, Paul? Because there's one gospel. And that one gospel, that one proclamation is Jesus Christ saves. That's it. So we have these four accounts of the one gospel. Mark's is by far the most concise. It's also, I believe, and and the weight of the evidence is on the side of this, that it is the earliest of the four gospels. We're not going to talk about the order of the New Testament books, how they got placed the way they did tonight. It's not that big a deal. But Mark was probably the earliest. The evidence indicates that. Written, check this out, think about this. Mark writing just within 25 years of when Jesus lived. So recent to the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, Mark sat down to write. The evidence indicates he wrote this around 57 A.D. So 25 years later, Mark comes along and says, we need need to have this written down. He's inspired by the Spirit to do so. All of the early church fathers, uh, they assigned this to Mark. So if you're wondering, well, how do we know? Because Mark's name is not listed. Uh, as the author of this book. He didn't write the Gospel according to Mark or in Greek, kata markon. He didn't write that. You know, it just, he just, because it was about Jesus, right? It wasn't about Mark. So the scroll was written. Can you imagine being in the first century church and having that first Gospel account? 
and how it must have gotten copied and recopied and passed around and everybody just hanging on every word of the life of Jesus, of the proclamation of Jesus. We're told as early as 110 A.D., Papias, who was a bishop of Hierapolis, and by 110 A.D. there were bishops, not maybe how they're talked about or thought of today, but there were overseers over regions as the church began to spread out and grow. And there was one Christian church, one church of Christ, one church of Jesus, one way in each town. In these various regions, there were bishops that were sent out to kind of help you know, oversee and, and to maintain communication. Started out as a good idea. And these bishops, one of them was Papias. And Papias, we have in his own writing that this gospel was written by Mark, that this gospel was based on the preaching of Peter in Rome, which is why there's so much Latin and Aramaic in it, because it's written to non-believing people. And thirdly, that this was wholly reliable. So Papias wrote that. Think about this, the proclamation written by Mark within 25 years of Jesus' early life, or earthly life, and it was reliably confirmed just 50 years after that. So very quickly after Jesus lived, was crucified, rose, and ascended, very quickly after that, within 75 years, it had been written and it had been proclaimed as accurate. And that's the book that you have in your hands before you. But we need to keep something else in mind here. that Mark is not the author of this book, right? Every time we open up a new book, I like to remind you of this. I need to be reminded of this. Mark's not the author. Peter is not the author. They weren't Peter's sermons. They are the words of the Holy Spirit inspiring Peter, inspiring Mark to write these things down. We've got to remember that. The Bible's authored by the Lord, by God, not by men. They were just the instruments. They were the big pins, if you will. God goes into the, the drugstore of the cosmos and picks these men out, these big pin scribes, these writers, and He says, write. And they're the instruments He uses. And some scholars speculate, and I tell you this because with Mark, a lot of scholars will come out and they say, well, Mark is the template for the synoptic Gospels. If you've heard of the synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because there are a lot of similarities in those three Gospels. John's out there on his own. Now, John tells similar stories in his Gospel, but John waited a long time, about 50, 60 years after Jesus ascended, before John would write his Gospel from a completely unique perspective. And so they say, well, Mark... Uh, if we accept that it's the earliest gospel written, well then Matthew and Luke, they had a copy of Mark and they sat down and they kind of piggybacked off. That's a good story. I can add on there. Uh, We don't really need that. And used Mark as kind of their template to work off of. I love what, what Ironside says about this. All such speculations are idle and vain. Idle because they're a waste of time and vain because they don't really mean anything. The imprint of the divine mind is on every page of these records. And their very divergences, never contradictions, as well as their agreements are evidence of God's inspiration. The uniqueness of the four Gospels tells us God inspired them. Because there were things God wanted added or 
or shared or talked about, unique to each perspective. In the same way that if four of us wrote four different books about what was happening tonight, we would all write differently, though we're in the same place. We would be similar in our stories. We'd talk about the songs that were sung. We'd say we were we were all probably be in agreement that we're in the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel according to Mark. We'd share maybe some perspective of who was here. But we would all have different angles that we viewed this evening from. In the same way Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had different angles inspired by the Spirit of God to write what God wanted to have on record for the life of Jesus Christ. Erasmus, quoted by Kenneth Woost. And by the way, Kenneth Woost has a series of four or five books. It's a... uh, a compilation to go together called Word Studies in the Greek New Testament. Every believer should have those on their shelf. Kenneth Woost, W-U-E-S-T. You can call him Kenneth West or Kenneth Wuest or Kenneth Weest or whatever you want. Kenneth Woost, I think is the probably closest. Kenneth Woost, Word Studies in the Greek New Testament. Excellent, excellent book. The guy's a, a, an amazing scholar. He said these, he quotes Erasmus saying, these holy pages will summon up the living image of God's mind. They will give you Christ Himself. Talking, healing, dying, rising, the whole Christ in a word. They will give Him to you, listen to this, in an intimacy so close that He would be less visible to you if He stood before your eyes. Interesting. Now I would rather have Him stand before my eyes. You know, but I see what what Erasmus is getting at. I understand what he's saying because while we will stand before him and he will stand before our eyes someday, not too far off from now, the reality is when I read over the gospel, when I ponder these things of Jesus, he's inviting me to know him. And the beauty of coming to know Jesus by the gospels is I'm not in the way. Have you noticed that when you read and study and think through the gospels? You're seeing Jesus. You're seeing Jesus first. He is highlighted. He is illuminated. And so there is something very special, very powerful about walking through the Gospel together and getting to know Him better by it. Kind of like the letters I've shared before. The letters Cheryl and I wrote back and forth. The first year we were dating, although we, weren't, we were dating, but we weren't because we weren't even in the same state. But we spent a year writing letters together. And getting to know each other by words on a page, and yet it was more than words on a page. How much more so do we read the words on the page about Jesus, inspired by the Spirit of Jesus, as that same Spirit of Jesus, and we'll get into this in a minute, is in us, revealing to us who He is. We can know Christ with great intimacy as we pour over the Gospels. The Gospel. I'm going to check myself on these things. So, there's a Spirit-inspired and calculated contrast between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Mark's account of the Gospel is unique in very special ways, his proclamation. Let me explain to you what the differences are in a a nutshell here. This is not Matthew's prophecy-based, systematic Hebrew proof of Jesus Christ as King. That's not what Mark is talking about or writing about. Although... Jesus' authority is evident throughout the Gospel of Mark. But this isn't Luke's comprehensively interviewed eyewitness reporting of Jesus as the Son of Man. That's Luke's primary perspective. That's not Mark's primary perspective, although Jesus' humanity is in full view in the Gospel of Mark. This is not 
John's 60-year thoughtful exegesis of the person of Jesus as God. See, Matthew says he's the king of Israel. And Luke says he's the son of man. John says he's God. God among us. God made flesh. Mark's not looking from any of those three perspectives, although Jesus' authority, His humanity, and His nature divinely are all present in Mark. But that's not His focus. So what is the focus of Mark? It's Mark's action-packed account of Jesus as the servant of the Lord. This is the Gospel that describes the servant nature of Jesus Christ. And I think that's marvelous, having just come out of Isaiah. Do you remember the servant songs of Isaiah? We saw Isaiah proclaiming this coming Messiah in terms of a servant. Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold, my servant whom I, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. My servant. And that's Jesus. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 49, verse 6, The Lord says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Jesus would be more than the Jewish Messiah. He would be the King of the world. He would be the Messiah of the world. The Son of Man come among us. He would be the servant who brings salvation. Four servant songs. Interesting. Four servant songs. Five, if you include Isaiah 61. Four gospel accounts. Five, if you include the book of Revelation, which I do, personally. And speaking of the Revelation, you Bible students recall, John gave a description that is very interesting, especially where the gospels are concerned. The four accounts. He describes the look of the cherubim. Those angelic creatures. Now, when John describes them, listen to this, Revelation 4, 7, he says, the first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had the face like that of a man, and the fourth creature like a flying eagle. Well, apparently, John only saw the cherubim from one angle. Because Ezekiel tells us they weren't four different types of cherubim. They were one and the same cherubim with four faces. And as I've said before, I'm still looking for that one to top the Christmas tree. (laughs) Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 10, each had the face of a man. All four had the face of a lion on the right, the face of a bull or a calf on the left, and all four had the face of an eagle. The face of a man, a lion, a bull, and an eagle, all on this one angelic being called the cherubim, and we will freak out when we see them. Now you know we probably won't because we'll be looking at Jesus. And we'll say, cherubim, shmerabim, I want to see the Lord. So what about that? Why is that interesting? Well, four faces, four songs, four gospels, coincidence. Matthew proclaims Jesus as king, the face of a lion. Luke describes Jesus as the son of man, the face of a man. John explains the soaring divinity of Christ as the face of an eagle would portray. And Mark presents Jesus, the servant of the Lord, which we see in the face of a calf or a bull. Why? Because those are beasts of burden. Those are servant animals. A bull draws, or a calf draws a cart. 
and pulls and serves. So a beast of burden, a servant. Mark's is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord. And we're going to see this perspective over and over. Watch Jesus just serving like crazy. Now we've got to get moving. In fact, we're already way behind Mark. You see, in the Gospel of Mark, there is an urgency. Les and I were talking about earlier today, there's an amazing word that Mark uses 42 times in 16 chapters. In fact, he uses this word in those 42 times. This word won't even be used that much in the rest of the New Testament combined. Mark loves this word. He uses it 11 times in chapter 1 alone. The Greek word is euthus. And euthus means immediately, straight away, at once, with haste. In the account, in our English translation, most often it's immediately. Some other translations other than the NASB will say straight away or at once or with haste. But you've got to watch for it because it's this motion word. John hits, or Mark hits the ground running. John Mark hits the ground running. We'll talk more about who Mark was on Sunday as well. But he uses this word immediately over and over and over and over and over. Why? What is the deal with Mark? Why is he so urgent? I think it's because the king's business requires haste. I want you to think about this, especially as we go through tonight. The king's business requires haste. Does that sound familiar to you? Any Bible students? Have you heard that sentence before? The king's business requireth haste. David said it. David was fleeing for his life from Saul, who was trying to kill him. And David came to the city of Nob, where there were a group of priests, and the the, uh, Ark of the Covenant was there at the time. And David comes into where the priests are and he meets Ahimelech, the priest. And the priest says, what's going on? And why the rush? Because David says, we need some bread. We need some... Oh, and you still have the sword there. Goliath, that's great. Can I take... And, he's, and the priest is wondering what's going on. And David says, the king's business requireth haste. Now, of course, David's haste did not bode well for the priests of Nob. Because once David hightailed it out of there with his men... Saul's men came in and killed all the priests. Murdered them all. David would feel that weight on his conscience for a long time. The murder of the priests of Nob. My fault. I did that. The problem though, is that David was running from the king. Not for the king. And there's a big difference. Because I think David's right. The king's business requires haste. If, if you're running for the king. If you're running from the king, it's just a big mess. A lot of Christians run from the king and don't even know they're doing it. A lot of Christians are making haste. Look, Lord, we're busy, but we're not accomplishing anything. Because we're running from the king rather than for the king. How do you know the difference? I'll tell you that later. The king's business requires haste. Did you know that the Bridge Fellowship began one month One month after I first heard the call to start the church. There were people who didn't believe me, who thought I had been planning this for at least a year because there's no way you could start a church that quick. Jesus can. And He did. As I shared on Sunday, on September 1st of 2003, I was out of here. On September 2nd of 2003, God said, would you be willing to plant a church here? On October 4th of 2003, one month and two days later, I'll give you the extra two days, 
we had our first meeting with Rod and Barb Gilmore on October the 8th, our first Bible study, and we were off and running. The king's business requires haste. And I had, and Cheryl will remember this, I had an urgency. Especially in those earlier days, nine years ago, I had an urgency with what we were doing. We've got to get the word out. We don't have much time. I had just been fresh off a study of the book of Revelation, so you can understand my urgency. But you know, I thought about this recently again. I don't want to lose that. I don't want to stop being urgent in these last days. I don't want to settle in and be happy that we're a little church in a barn. I don't want to be comfortable. I want to be a gospel proclaimer. And I want this region and this world to hear the message of Jesus Christ until everybody gets saved. That's what I want. Is it going to happen? No. Tragically, it won't. But I'll tell you what, we can make a major dent in the population of Whidbey and Fidalgo Island, not to mention the Skagit Valley, if we will be proclaimers of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. And he says, listen to the language, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Ephesians 5.16, Paul says, make the most of your time, because the days are evil. My friends, the king's business requires haste. But again, how do I know when I'm making haste for the Lord, for the king, rather than running from the king? We'll get there. But may we never, never grow accustomed to living in the last days. May we live tomorrow, when we wake up in the morning, should we wake up at all, here. May we tomorrow be urgent with the message of the Gospel of Jesus. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. You might know this in your margin. The first part of that, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, is from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight, is from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Well then, why does it, there's a contradiction. Why does it say, as is written in Isaiah the prophet? Simply put, scribes and rabbis often referred to a, a book by the first book in the scroll. Isaiah was the first book in the scroll that contained Malachi, and therefore they would say, as it's written in Isaiah, and Jewish people would understand, oh, Isaiah, that's anywhere within the scroll of the prophets. Malachi is in there. So that's why both quotes are there, and it's not just Isaiah, but it's Isaiah and Malachi. Or you might pronounce it Malachi, the Italian prophet. (laughs) Verse 4. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now listen carefully. And I may even do a whole Sunday morning on this, but we'll see. The baptism of John was a baptism of preparation. I think you probably get that. It was a baptism of anticipation. He's calling people out to get baptized in preparation for the coming king. It was based off of an understanding in the Jewish people of the Jewish mikvah. The mikvah is a cleansing ritual bath. 
Anytime the Jews went into the temple, and you can see this in Jerusalem today, there were there are big pits that have stairs going down one side and up the other side, and they would go down into the pit and immerse themselves, submerge themselves completely, and come back out the other side. They had them for men, they had them for women. You went into the Jewish mikvah bath before going into the temple as a ritual cleansing. John the Baptist now comes along and he's, he's mikvahing people right and left out of the Jordan River. <laughs> and in these baptisms, he's doing it differently. It differed from our baptism today, if we can just call it this for now, Christian baptism, in that it looked forward, it anticipated forgiveness, preparing people for what was about to come. Okay? And that's different than our baptism today. Our baptism doesn't anticipate forgiveness. Our baptism, and I can show you why, our baptism is in response to forgiveness. We have already received forgiveness before going into the waters of baptism. Now I know that can be controversial for some. The church I grew up in taught very clearly, you are not cleansed of your sin until you go into the water literally and you're immersed and you come out of the water literally. That is your where your salvation literally happens. And I would point people to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which I'll read just a second here. Hold that thought, though. Baptism of preparation was John's baptism. Ours is not preparation. Ours is response to what has already happened. But it also differed from the Jewish mikvah because John's baptism looked upward. So listen, it looked forward, John's baptism, preparation looked forward, and John's baptism looked upward. Watch this word. It was a baptism, what does it say in verse 4? For the forgiveness of sin. Right? Now I read a baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and my first thought is, in the English language, that what that means is I get baptized so I can get forgiven. Right? For. It's something for something. My baptism is for forgiveness. Well, in English, that makes sense. So I would say then, perhaps the church that I grew up in is right. The baptism is for forgiveness. Or at least John's baptism was. But that's not what the Greek word means. It's a poor translation. It can mean for, but for even in our language can mean different things. The Greek word here, note this, check it out on your own time if you'd like to. It's the word ice. Not I-C-E, but E-I-S. Ice. And ice means literally because of. How does that change the translation? John was baptizing because of the forgiveness of sin. Wow. That's totally different. What does that say? Well, it's a baptism of preparation, right? So the preparation is an anticipation of forgiveness of sin. It wasn't that they got baptized because their sin had already been forgiven. Not at that point. But it was anticipating that their sin would be forgiven when Jesus died on the cross. Anticipating that grace. And you know, and we know this from later in the book of Acts, people who were baptized in John's baptism, anticipating, got rebaptized into Jesus after the crucifixion. Why? So they could receive finally for the forgiveness of sin? No. No. Because the forgiveness of sin. It's by grace through faith. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works. And that means any work. You don't do anything 
that saves you, which includes going down into and up out of a mikvah. That won't save you. It's water. The saving grace of Jesus Christ and His death on the cross, that's what saves you. That's what saves me. And our baptism, this is where we're similar to John's baptism. It is because of the forgiveness of sin. Why should I get baptized? Do you believe in Jesus? Yeah. Have you given Him your life? Yes. Is He your Lord and Savior? Uh Uh-huh. Why wouldn't you be baptized? Why not proclaim to the world through your baptism in a visible, physical, tangible way, looking like you're being buried and raised to new life, why not do that and proclaim what God has done inside that the world can't see? That you know. And that's what baptism is about. The word, that word ice, again, because of it, signifies that forgiveness is not the result of baptism. It is the reason for baptism. It is the occasion for baptism. And so, for the Jewish people coming out to John, it was not about what they did. It was about what God was doing. It was about what He was setting in motion. It was preparation. And in the same way, well, think of it as a before and after baptism thing with forgiveness in the middle. John's baptism anticipated forgiveness, and so they got baptized. It didn't forgive them, but it anticipated that forgiveness was right there. Our baptism, though it doesn't give us forgiveness, it thanks God, it commemorates, it shows the world that we have been forgiven by the grace of Jesus through His blood on the cross, and so we're baptized. Does that mean we shouldn't be baptized? It's not necessary? I'd say it's necessary because Jesus said do it. But I will stand on this, that His grace has saved me, and no act of mine has saved me. Mark 16.16 16 says, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. Note that belief precedes baptism. But he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. It doesn't say he who has disbelieved and has not been baptized because that's kind of superfluous. If you don't believe, you're not going to get baptized, right? It's kind of a waste of your time. Mark 16.16 16, Some have said the last eight verses of Mark don't count. They're not in the early versions. I will show you when we get to Mark 16 why they do count. And it's not because of what versions or translations they show up in. It's because of the internal evidence in the Bible that is throughout those last eight verses and make it absolutely clear God inspired those and they belong. But that's in 16 weeks or so. Verse 6 going on. As immediately as Mark wrote, we are not moving as immediately as I had hoped. Verse 6. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locusts and wild honey. What a stud. <laughs> this, is a, he's, this guy's a real man's man. I mean, he was signed up for the gun club. He was living out on, you know, living out in the wilderness. This, he was tough. He is also strangely reminiscent of the description of Elijah or Isaiah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. In fact, John the Baptist, mark this, is the last of the Hebrew prophets before Jesus. The last Hebrew prophet. He was the last one raised up before the cross, before the new dispensation, the new age of grace. Yes, it had been 400 years or so since the last one had spoken but John the Baptist himself is truly the last of the Hebrew prophets. And he comes out there and his fashion was not the latest from Camel Klein. His fashion was wearing camel skin, yes, but inside out. 
This now listen, this is the method of the prophets. They would wear camel skin. Isaiah does. It's turned inside out, so the bristly, sticking fur, that, that hair, that tough bristly camel hair was against their skin. Not comfortable. In fact, it'd be irritating. Why? Because, because the prophet was on a mission. Because the prophet needed to be constantly reminded that their purpose was God's purpose and not their creature comforts of any kind. And so his fashion was camel skin, bristly coarse hair rubbing against his skin. No wonder the prophets could get into a real attitude from time to time. His food was limited to beehives and dried bugs. Mm. Mm. Now I know, you know, it's funny. Bible commentators trying to make it easier to swallow... Come along. They come along and they connect the locust and the wild honey reference to the carob tree of the Middle East. Perhaps you've heard this. The carob tree, also called the locust tree. And so to ease up on this a tad, they say, oh no, he was eating from the locust tree there in the Middle East, the carob tree. He was eating off of that. And carob honey can be made from that same tree, so he made carob honey. And he ate carobs from the locust tree. Locusts and wild honey. That's what's being talked about. My response to that is... (laughs) And I'll tell you why. Because locusts specifically are listed in the law as clean food. You can eat a locust and be kosher. Leviticus 11.21 Yet these you may eat among all the winged insects which walk on all fours. Thankfully he didn't say on all eights. Those which have their feet jointed legs with which to jump on the earth. Leaping, jumping, four-legged insects. Is this on the GAPS diet, Cheryl? Would it be? Probably. I think it would be. These of them you may eat, the locust in its kind, and the devastating locust in its kinds, and the cricket in its kinds, and the grasshopper in its kinds. And I read that, and I thought, okay, so wild honey I can go with. Locust, I guess you need something crunchy to go with all that honey. So that's John the Baptist. Verse 7, he comes along. Camel hair, locust in his teeth. And he was preaching, saying, After me is coming one who is mightier than I. I like what John, the Apostle, says about this. After me is one who came before me. (laughs) Only God could do that, right? After me is one who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. That is the right attitude of a Christian follower of Jesus. I don't even deserve to change his shoes. But like John, I have a, a message I have a proclamation, and I will make that for him. John says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I prepare you for his coming, John would say. He will pervade you, immerse you, empower you with his Holy Spirit. And you know and I know, beginning with Pentecost, this promise was extended not only to the twelve who were there with the tongues of fire, but to all those who would ever believe in Jesus Christ. Where do you get that, Rick? Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter said, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That word for there, same word as in Mark chapter 1, ice. Be baptized because of the forgiveness of your sins. 
And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, he says, For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. What does that mean? It means the baptism of the Holy Spirit is available to all those who believe in Jesus from the beginning at Pentecost all the way until Jesus comes again. And there is no end of it. There is no cessation. There is nowhere in Scripture that says the Holy Spirit's power ceased with the last of the apostles. That is not biblical. That may be traditional in some denominations, but it's not biblical. Show me the verse that says, well, that's where it's over. As many as are far off, all those who the Lord will call to Himself, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? I don't know if I have been. You're not going to be able to rightly bring the proclamation, the gospel message, with the kind of immediacy that we are called to without the baptism of the Holy Spirit in your life. And I I just wish we could get beyond dividing Christians as those who have been baptized with the Holy Spirit and those who have not. Uh, You know what the answer is to that? Ask to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And we all have been and, and will be and we're good to go. There's another Greek meaning, by the way, to that word euthus, which means immediate. Now, when Mark uses it, it means immediate, but this is interesting to me because it also can mean upright. And this is a little hint for you. How do you know when the immediacy, when the haste, when the urgency in your life is a godly urgency rather than your own craziness? How do you know? Well, you move immediately in an upright way And you can only do that by the Holy Spirit. You can only do that by the power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Read on, verse 9. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Another great reason to be baptized, if you never have been, Jesus was. And what's good enough for Jesus is good enough for me. And if for no other reason He did it, I want to do it. Okay? So He was baptized in the Jordan. He came down from Nazareth Just point of interest here, Nazareth today is an Arab city. 60,000 is the population of Nazareth. It's pretty sprawling on a ridge there overlooking the Jezreel Valley to the east. It ends up on a a peak or a precipice that many think that's where they tried to push Jesus off to his death when he announced, proclaimed the gospel in himself, Luke chapter 4. Nazareth, 60,000 people today, 70% Muslim, 30% 30% Christian, 0 or 0.00001% Jewish. In Jesus' day, it was all Jews. It wasn't all Nazrim, or Na Nazrim, or I'm not getting that right, but the Arabic name. It was Nazareth, it was Jewish, and it was a tiny little hamlet with a population, they think now, of about 150 people. Jesus was small town. and change the world. Think that through. And so in verse 10, he comes down from Nazareth, he heads south, comes from Nazareth in the Galilee, was baptized by John of Jordan, probably in the region of Bethany beyond Jordan, which is where we did our baptizing at the last tour, and I loved it, it was so cool. Great place there. Um, But down to the south end. And we're told immediately after coming up out of the water, verse 10, He saw the heavens open. Now, by the way, you can't come up out of the water unless you go down into the water. Okay. Again, it's just another... We don't really need 
We don't need the exact picture here because the word baptism means immersion. It means to be submerged. That's what the word means. But Jesus goes down into the water and immediately as He comes up out of the water, not as He's walking out of the water, as He comes up. The moment He hits air again, in that instant, note this, verse 10, immediately is the word, first time out of 11 in this chapter, immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens saying, you are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. And in two verses we just saw the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all together. The Trinity all there. Father speaking. Spirit descending. Jesus rising out of the water. That's an amazing picture. We could just sit and think that through for hours. But let me just ask this question. Why was, why was Jesus baptized? Later he would say to John, I need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. But, but you are righteous. You are all righteousness. Why was Jesus baptized? Why did the Holy Spirit descend upon him if in other places in the New Testament the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ? How? Oh. That hurts to think about. Jesus is coming out of the water and His Spirit descends on Him? How does that work? What's the point? Listen, in Isaiah we saw Jesus as the perfect Jew. Do you remember talking about that? He fulfilled in and of Himself everything that Israel was supposed to be. Everything that that God ordained Israel to be, even knowing that they wouldn't get there. Just like we wouldn't get there as the perfect Christian. But Jesus was the perfect Jew. Fulfilled the law. Did it all right. He's the perfect Christian as well. What I mean by that is He is the ultimate representation of how a Christian should live and walk and breathe on this earth. He shows us exactly from baptism forward how a Christian is to look and to live. And He even went so far as Paul says Philippians 2.7 to empty Himself taking the form of a bondservant. So what did he do? He emptied himself of his power. And we've talked about this in here before, but I just want to make sure we all get this. He set aside the power, not who he was, not his nature, he's still God in the flesh, set aside the power until the Holy Spirit descends on him and empowers him. Why would he do that? So you and I would understand that's what happens. We are not empowered for ministry until the Holy Spirit comes upon us and then we are empowered. And though we are not God in the flesh, we're just flesh in the flesh, we can be filled with the Spirit of Christ in the same way Jesus Himself was filled with the Holy Spirit. Power to ministry. Power to do that to which He was called. Jesus shows us, portrays the perfect Christian filled with the Holy Spirit and then launches His public ministry and then is able to do, enabled to do all the things that He did to the glory of God. By the power of the Holy Spirit who is... Consequently, His Spirit. (laughs) And that's where it just gets mind-blowing because God is beyond even our full comprehension. But you know what's especially touching to me about Jesus' baptism? I love what it says at the end of verse 11. voice came out of heaven. God saying, You are my beloved Son. and you, I am well pleased. And this is before Jesus had done anything of note. He asked some good questions when he was a 12-year-old. You know? Okay. And I don't mean to be negative or demeaning of Jesus at all, but he hadn't done any ministry. 
He hadn't healed anybody. The blind were still blind. The lame were still lame. The deaf still couldn't hear a thing. Jesus had done nothing. And God said, I am so pleased with you. A father well pleased. What does that tell us? It tells us the pleasure of the Father is not based on our performance in ministry or our obedience to Him. God's pleasure is based in one thing, that we belong to Him. That's it. If you belong to God tonight, He is so pleased. The pleasure of a father. I had that pleasure. When Corey was born, the first time I saw him, I had the pleasure of a father. And he hadn't done anything. And then Hannah was born. She hadn't done a thing. But I had that same pleasure come rushing in. And then Hayden was born. The pleasure of a father. You know what's really cool? The second I knew Anna Marie, Naomi, and David were coming home, I I had that same pleasure. And they hadn't done anything. All my kids, though, the pleasure of a father. And when you're born again, you have the father's pleasure. 